So February the 24th marks one year since the invasion of Ukraine. On this week's Over the Farm Gate podcast, we're going to be taking a look back on all the changes and the impacts of the war over the past year. Over the Farmgate listeners are being offered the chance to win £200 by watching a series of films showcasing New Zealand agritech. Climate change and growing world population are driving a period of rapid innovation in agriculture across the globe and New Zealand is on a mission to be at the forefront of change. We combine a deep respect for the land with advanced technology and powerful partnerships to create agritech solutions which can deliver real results for all climates, landscapes and production systems. Watch the latest video in the series featuring Gallagher, Texian and Hustler at www.fginsight.com forward slash NZ Agritech. I'm Farmers Guardian Head of Business, Alex Black, and I've got Cedric Porter here with me today. Hi, Cedric. Hi, yeah. How are you, Alex? I'm good, thank you. So, um, if you want to take us back, first of all, Cedric, take us back to February 2022, uh, just before the war was kind of about to kick off, and, and just give us a bit of uh, context for what was happening at that time. Yeah, well, I suppose we've already seen a bit of increase in some of the energy prices, gas prices. I remember they were sort of spiking a bit in October 21 and, and you know, then through. Uh, and then I suppose it wasn't a great surprise that there was the invasion, although I, I think we were all sort of surprised how big an invasion it was. We, we sort of remember the sort of the troops massing and there were sort of talk of how much uh, he would go over and into um, how much of the uh, country he'd, he'd look to take, take over Putin. Um, so uh, but I think we were all really surprised how uh, big the invasion was. Uh, and then I suppose really sort of surprised how, um, how strong the resistance to the invasion was. But it, it, if we remember back, there was that enormous spiking in in energy prices straight away. And the oil price was probably the quickest to go up and, and followed by the gas prices. Oil prices then sort of stabilised a bit um, because uh, you're able to get oil from other parts of the of the world. And then, but it took quite a long time for the um, gas price to, to come down. And, and actually, it was, it was right into much later in the year that the uh, gas prices really um, spiked. Um, and then I suppose the big surprise was really how much gas prices came down. Uh, of course, gas prices very related to the price of fertilizer, particularly ammonium nitrate, which is made from gas. Um, so we saw that massive spiking in, in fertilizer prices uh, and uh, getting to you know ammonium nitrate well over 700 pounds a ton. Uh, but again, that's sort of come down uh, this time. Um, we, I think farmers who bought forward last time, uh, last year, uh, saw a real sort of bonus because they, uh, you know, they bought at much, much lower prices. But actually the strategy of buying forward for this season, they probably lost out on that because they've, uh, they, they bought forward when the prices were really high um later in in 2022 
and actually prices now uh, when they're starting to use the fertilizer are a bit lower. Um, so so it, it, it's been quite an extraordinary I mean, the last two or three years. You've seen real if, you, if you're a chart watcher like me, it's like um, being at Alton Towers on the road coasters. You just see them going up and down, up and down. Really, really quite quite extraordinary every graph we've had in fg over the past year you could you could literally put a little roller coaster yeah on well, there it and a, looked like the well sorry a little skier going down the down one side climbing up climbing up one side and then skiing, skiing down the other side um yeah so i i suppose and i think we're now sort of fertilizer on fertilizer we're probably seeing it's now uh some of the plants i think we're about 70 percent of plants in europe um Ammonium nitrate plants closed down because it was just so uneconomic to 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 produce fertilizer. You know, you um, you would be producing, uh, having to sell it at such a high rate as a fertilizer producer that no one would have bought it. Um, so so they they mothballed um, plants, and of course, there's the the plant that's in the UK, the CF plant, which is is closed permanently. Uh, but I think we're starting to see more of those opening again as the gas prices come down. So it's become a bit more economic. So hopefully that. Um, you know, that, that would be extra supply of fertiliser. And I suppose farmers are using fertiliser more effectively, efficiently. And I think some of that behaviour will continue, particularly as we as the pressure on um, to reduce fertiliser levels because of climate change. You know, I don't want to talk about positives from the war because obviously it's not a, not a thing that we want to be talking about positively in any way but you know it may have sped up some of that that change people have been looking at organic fertilizers and other alternatives to to their usual fertilizer um, applications yeah and i suppose just using fertilizer more effectively because actually i mean any fertilizer that does go into the soil or 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 whatever that's that's not going into the plant where it's where it's most effective um so so yeah no that I mean, that is and i suppose it's been i suppose we saw it this through the pandemic and through the war how resilient the basic food chain if you like the grain food chain has been um uh, and you know there is still a grain around it becomes very political with about 50% of the stocks of grain of wheat in particular in China. So that's all comes quite sort of political where grain is and, and whatever. But um, I know you're, you're speaking to, 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 to grain experts as well. So I won't really go into that sort of detail. Um, but, um, and I suppose oil prices, they seem to have stabilised. Uh, and there is, as I said, always a bit more oil around if, those people producing it want to sell it. Um, so that, again, that's quite political. Um, but I think there might be a sort of some sort of change in what crops we produce. And we might be going, well, we've seen, you know, we've seen the um, uh, empty shelves in the last few days, last week or two, um, in, in supermarkets of fresh produce. And I think that those costs are really high. The risks of growing fresh produce are really high. So in this more volatile um, uh, environment, market environment, I think people will perhaps err on the side of caution, grow more less or less risky, more reliable crops, if you like, cereals and things like that. Um, so, and that's not good for the fresh produce and it's not good for in, in terms of our nutrition. We do need those those. No fruit and vegetables are uh, really important to us. 
uh, and I, I fear one of the one of the, the the impacts of the war might have been might be a sort of less diverse agricultural scene and less diverse nutritional scene, which is not good for any of us. I mean, like you say, we've got we've got summer scales from Agri Analytics UK talking to us about the the grain market roller coaster uh, later on in the podcast. But take us through some of those other sectors, Cedric. So so that's grain, but the people buying that grain, the pig and poultry farmers and other livestock farmers, what's been the impact on them? Yeah, well, I suppose for the pig and poultry guys, with feed being such an important part of their um, their their uh, costs anyway, that much higher feed prices are really hit them and, and of course price not going up their their price not going up in the same uh relationship uh and we've seen i mean it's been the pig guys uh and and, and eggs and uh and and poultry meat um with poultry being also being hit by avian flu um but it's been really really so tough in the last couple of years and i suppose that was happening before the war anyway the war just exacerbated that with higher feed prices hopefully for them lower feed prices will um will help uh the market is now tighter because you know people have just um, stopped producing not surprisingly pigs poultry uh across um uh, across europe and, and, and further afield so hopefully that pri those prices will start to outstrip or they'll outstrip the costs and they will be making some money which they haven't really been doing it's a uh, pig farmers for, for for two or three years now um uh, and so so they you know hopefully that will happen i suppose you know dairy farmers they they did see their their milk price go up in relation to higher costs as well which uh which was good to see and i think perhaps a, a better relationship there but in within the milk chain um but now we're seeing some pretty significant price drops of course in in, in the dairy price um hopefully that will bottom out fairly quickly uh, as people cut back production uh, around the world um and uh, and then for 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 beef and lamb i suppose lamb a little bit less exposed to to feed costs anyway but then that's been hit by the the inflation um that we've seen for for consumers the cost of living inflation uh, and, and perhaps they've been be e e eating and buying and eating less lamb. doesn't seem to have impacted so much on the beef price yet. Uh, there's quite sort of tight supply uh, across the world of beef. So I think that helps um, um, beef prices. Uh, but, but, you know, just that's that general knock on that if people have, uh, people's spending powers in the shops have been hit, then of course they... Um, uh, you know they they will be looking for savings, and, and is that going to be on some of the the, the meat products, um, which we have seen a reduction in in some of the consumption so far? Yeah, no, no, you mentioned lamb there, but that's always referenced as a as a casualty of con consumer squeezing, with it being so much more expensive on a, a consumer level than than a lot of other than pork or, or chicken, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, no lamb does sort of seem seem to suffer in 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 recessions, I, I suppose. Um, I mean, the the prices are not gone back to where they were, you know, three, four, five years ago, which is good. I mean, they they, they are lower than last year. Um, so uh, hopefully for this year, it'll be a sort of question of holding steady. 
Uh, and and I suppose when people to go out for a for a sort of treat meals or want to treat themselves, well, some people might not want, you know want, might not want to go out to a restaurant, but they want to treat themselves at home. And you know it's important that the, the lamb um, gets a look in there, uh, and so really good sort of quality lamb, um, and for the British lamb industry to be pushing that, it's really important. We should talk as well, Cedric, about you know Ukrainian farmers. We've talked a lot about British farmers and the global market, but obviously it's been a very difficult time to be a a Ukrainian farmer. Just tell us a little bit about what you know about you know the impacts on the ground there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think yeah, it does sort of pales uh, pales into into in, in uh, comparison, I suppose, the real sort of effect. And I i think we can only sort of imagine what what it would be like that you know one day you're in your tractor and then the next you know two or three weeks later you, you you're fighting um and uh, you know on that sort of personal level the number of people they they will have lost to um and of labor going off to fight is quite extraordinary i mean there are some some figures i think probably um uh, across the year of uh, 20 on the last year it's, it's cost ukrainian agriculture more than about five billion dollars in, in lost um uh, revenue uh they i mean they were able to to harvest a, a reasonable crop in 2022 of wheat in particular because it's winter crop um the the spring crops were hit and i know sort of potato crop is one of the smallest for uh for uh, of this century uh, but I think, and and you know, these these are foodstuffs are really important. Just getting those foods um, to to the to the troops that need them. I mean, this will be a, for, uh, a challenge for Russia as well of of getting food into to to the areas where they actually need them to to for those um uh, those uh, armies to be um, supplied. So that is a, ma- a massive log- logistical challenge as well as getting wheat out of, out of the country to export it. So that disruption is quite extraordinary. I suppose it, it is the effort to to keep, keep people fed uh, within Ukraine is quite an extraordinary one. And, and you know, we've he- heard about the way they've kept um, railways going, which are you know, we, we, we moan about rail strikes here, but um, you can imagine that the, the real pressure on, on, on railways there and just getting that food moved around, people to move to it. They've utilised the railways more more than ever for, you know, moving grain and other other food yeah. stuffs, haven't they? Yeah, every, yeah. no, it is. And, and I suppose... I suppose that real... When you are under attack, what you can do is quite extraordinary... You know, I don't quite want to relate it to to how it was in in Britain when Britain was under attack in um, the Second World War. But I suppose if you are under attack, you've got that real drive to to not just repel um, your attackers, but to actually um, to to keep on going in all all forms. And you know, we had dig for, dig for victory in the, in in Britain, and that'll be that same sort of approach that. Everyone's everyone's sort of hand to the pump of of, of uh, making sure there's enough food uh, and and working really hard on it. It's um, and I suppose as a country, if you are being attacked, you you you're in. And I think this is this is what will ultimately uh, be a victory victory for Ukraine. That it is the one that has got most to gain from uh, repelling the invaders. Uh, whereas if you're an invading force, particularly as a soldier, 
you know, haven't you? You haven't got that same sort of interest in in uh, invading the country as as you ha- would have in defending your own country. I know that a lot of our readers and and listeners will have personal links to Ukraine through, you know, farm workers who've come from Ukraine in the in the past. Or um, certainly up in Scotland, there's a, a lot of links, isn't there, between the Scottish industry and yeah. Ukraine. Uh, and I know they've been um, campaigning to send pickup trucks over to to Ukraine as well uh, up there. Just a, a little bit of context uh, there, Cedric, you talk about Ukraine. How important is Ukraine, you know, as an agricultural superpower pre-war? Yeah, pre-war, but well, between Russia and Ukraine, uh, I think it was a third of um, wheat exports came out of Russia and Ukraine and about half of all the sunflower oil exports came out of Ukraine by itself. So really important parts of it. I think apart from if you had America and Canada fighting, I think you couldn't really get two more significant um, agricultural superpowers fighting in terms of the uh, supplies that they they give to other parts of the world. Um, So, you know, it it has been an enormous shock for the uh, global food uh, industry and I suppose it's quite a sort of testament to to where we are now um that there is there being a lot of resilience uh, in the in the food chain I know you know it's very easy, easy to think that it's um you know, the food chain has sort of fallen apart but it hasn't and it didn't fall apart during the pandemic um and um, that's all dependent, of course, on on things being um, being planted and harvested each year, uh, and so we might see um, some issues again this year, particularly if, if Ukraine can't plant as much as it did last year. Although other parts of the world will be planting more, um, so it is a pretty resilient chain. But that doesn't mean we should take it for granted. And, you know, food the last two or three years have really raised that issue of food security. And I think we do need to take a long, hard look at it and and the diversity of our food as well. You know, if we are valuing fresh produce, we are valuing the the animals within that um, food chain that that need that feed to be to be fed. you know, I think it's a, it's it is that sort of t- time for a long hard look, um, and and I suppose as we had in the war with us eighty years ago, that sort of through that um, came some sort of food basic significant food policies, which I suppose the UK is already working on because of its Brexit um, post Brexit policies. But I think it's even more important to do it now from a um, resilience point of view particularly if you're then seeing um, change in the climate as well. So you, you, you've got issue upon issue. Yeah, and that's probably been driven home even more in the past two or three weeks with the shortages that we're seeing of tomatoes and, and salad vegetables. And obviously we've had shelves empty of eggs back in since back in autumn, haven't we? Yeah, I th- I, th- I suppose that has happened the last two or three years, you know, since the pandemic um people you know shoppers not taking their food quite so much for granted that they realize you know up until that you know for 10 years 20 years before that shelves were groaning and you could have you know 20 different types of tomato it was 
always a crisis if we haven't got piccolo tomatoes um whereas now yeah the, there's I, I think that that is an appreciation of of food is doesn't just appear um and it is really important it does appear uh, and it takes a lot of effort to get it to the shelves thanks cedric i think that brings us nicely on to our next guest Rupert Summerscales is the Chief Analyst at AgriAnalytics UK and Rupert is a long-standing contributor to our grain coverage and grain newsletter here at Farmers Guardian. I caught up with Rupert to get his views on how the conflict has affected international grain markets. Yeah, hi Alex, uh, it's Rupert Summerscales here. Uh, our business is AgriAnalytics UK. Uh, we offer risk management solutions to not just farmers, cereal farmers, but also um, the uh, the buying side of things. So we have a couple of pig farmers on our books who obviously want lower prices. Uh, we have a couple of poultry farmers on our books who want lower prices for their feed. Uh, but we also have a heap of guys who are sellers of grain. So we have a very balanced view on uh, where market pricing is at. Uh, and we have a global perspective and a global reach as well. Do you want to start off and tell us, I suppose in those weeks leading up to it and then the initial invasion what happened in the grain markets what happened in the in the preceding time before the war i think really few were really expecting russia to go to war with a neighboring country it's not happened in europe since the 1940s or 30s um so it was a bit of a shock but i think the the initial warning was pretty much came from the americans and the british saying guys You've got a heap of uh, heap of troops on the Ukrainian border, and they are going to do this. You don't have hundreds of thousands of troops on the, somebody else's border without meaning it, and they meant it. And uh, so that was the initial um, notification because it took us all by surprise, really. And I think that's fair for the grain markets. No one was really expecting uh, Russia, which you know, with all its almighty military power, to to do what it did. It was a bit of a surprise. But to be fair, they did warn us they, were, they would do this. They told us in 2008 in the um, Bucharest summit for NATO, they told us that if you, if you insist on NATO expansion, we're going to flatten it. You're not having it, Ukraine. And they did it to Georgia as well. So it shouldn't have been a surprise to geopolitics or maybe historians, actually. Um, but, you know, when you have two countries that are so... Um, important to the world's grain trade. It really uh, shook shook us all by the the the, uh, the collar and um, and says, "Wake up, guys! These guys are having a war, and um, this is going to disrupt a lot of trade." And this is what has arguably happened. And give us some facts and figures about Russia and Ukraine's importance to the to the global grain trade. Then. Between the two of them, and I think that's where you need to look at, rather than I mean, uh, rather than look at just individual countries, look at the two of them together. I mean, the Black Sea encompasses Romania, Kazakhstan, Russia, Ukraine, all these countries. But if you just look at Ukraine and uh, Russia together as a combined thing, as it happens right here today, we're forecasting we, uh, we're not alone, uh, we're forecasting relatively negligible change in the world trade in wheat between the two countries. I mean, in 2021, um, between the two countries, uh, they would have exported. Uh, in 2021, we're looking at, what is it, 50, uh, probably 52 million tonnes of wheat exports. 
in 2022, once we've got the, the forecasts in, probably from the USDA and from everyone else, we're looking at maybe 53 million tonnes. So one million tonne difference between the two countries. So negligible. That's nothing. I mean, we were fortunate in one respect in that Russia had an absolute stonking wheat crop. Um, whose wheat it is, is another question. <laughs> because Russia considers Crimean wheat, um, which is probably two and a half million tonnes, something like that. That's theirs, according to Russia. So too is Donbass and um, uh, Luhansk, or whatever, whatever the real name is. Um, so it's really difficult. To, the ownership of the grain is one issue. Uh, but actually, in terms of actual volumes, um, the trade flows have kept going. Now, this is largely to do with the... Uh, um, the initiative that was uh, the Grain Corridor Initiative that allowed Ukraine the safety, if you like, for vessels to go into Odessa and, and their other ports to get the grain out. Uh, if you, you know, at the beginning of the war, the first thing that happened was um, there were mines all around um, Odessa. Now, we don't know who put them in there. Was it Odessa being, was it Ukraine being... Um, defensive, if you like, to stop military uh, warships from Russia getting closer to the mainland? Or was it Russia saying, no, Ukraine, you're not having any ships coming out of Odessa? So that was one of the big things at the time. And that's what prompted, in a large way, um, the Black Sea Grain Corridor uh, Initiative, which arguably has been successful because the wheat flowing out of those two countries out of the Bosphorus, out of the Black Sea, into the Med, and therefore into the rest of the world, has largely been a negligible difference. It's not the same case, though, for, for maize, for corn, um, because especially for Europe, and this is quite an important one, I think, really, because, you know, Europe imports a heap of maize from Ukraine. It relies on it as well as um, as well as Brazil. We, we we don't do too much from the US because it's GM stuff and so is Brazil arguably. But uh, anyway, um, but Ukraine has always been a, a big exporter of maize into the EU, uh, and without the access through the Bosphorus and on the bigger boats, the 30, 50, 60 Panamax vessels, it's always been a struggle. Now, you know, they could get it to Europe, but it's on barge freight, right? Barge freight. I mean, these are these are much smaller vessels and they they simply don't have enough vessels, the barges to be able to go up and down the, the river system, if you like, all the way through Europe. And of course, it takes 10 times longer to get there with a much smaller volume. So there has been a dislocation to a large degree in the corn market, but not so much for wheat. It took the market by surprise. Don't get me wrong. Uh, market jumped up because we simply did not know a how long this uh, conflict was going to last, but b what the consequences were. What you know is Russia going to bomb everything? Is you know what's going to happen? So a lot of uncertainty, and the market responded accordingly. Once the initiative came into place, um, then we recognised relatively quickly that. Uh, the free flow of move, the movement of the grain out of the Black Sea was occurring safely. Um, you have to bear in mind that, it, you know, if I put my, let's say I'm a, I own a Panamax vessel and some guy rings me up and says, uh, I'd like to borrow, can I hire your Panamax vessel, please, Rupert? Um, I'm saying, yeah, sure, no worries. Hey, um, 
<laughs> so where, where are you going with my vessel then? My favourite vessel. I've even named my vessel. It's got a name. Where are you going to where, where are you going to go? Oh, I'm just going to go and pick up a load from Odessa in Ukraine. What you mean an active war zone? Are you kidding me? No, you're not having my vessel, right? So that got complicated, and then the Western sanctions came in to prevent a lot of the financial transactions. That caused that actually probably caused and still does cause a lot of trouble. Um, not only just in grains, but also in fertilizer, of which Ukraine, uh, Russia is one of the biggest um, exporters in the world. So are we shooting ourselves in the foot here by putting sanctions on Russian, uh, preventing Russian fertilizer to get to the market where it belongs? We don't know. We'll, but, um, you know, UK farmers, not UK, Europe, UK, um, everyone is... Farmers are consider reconsidering their fertilizer application rights as a consequence, and you take that one step further. You can imagine it's not it's not a done deal yet, but you can imagine the reduced nitrogen levels across the across the board and potash and the rest of them. Um, you can imagine a lower yield for the northern hemisphere in particular. So, um, yeah, I think the, the question marks are starting to build about 2023-24 crop season as much as they are 22-23, which seems relatively organised rather than chaotic. You mentioned about Europe and the relationship between Europe and, and the Black Sea region for, for um, corn imports, but where does the UK fit into the, the mix and, and how does it impact on, on our farmers here? Well, we're part of the bigger global complex in, in the grains and oil seeds markets, of course. It's not uh, unknown, the correlation between UK prices and, and let's say, our largest um, uh, market in Europe, France, um, is very strong. I mean, so really we're talking about um, when we look to the UK, uh, we have currency to take into account as well, and that's related to interest rate differentials and things like this. But... Really, when we, we try to figure out where the UK prices are in relation, we have to relate it to someone else. And, and in our case, particularly, you know, a small little island with a great big exporter of wheat on our doorstep uh, with a huge reference market, Matif, we sort of have to tag, tag along to them and place our pricing levels according to whether we're a net importing nation or a net exporting nation of wheat. Barley seems to be working on still 20-odd quid below wheat. It's a, just a source of carbohydrates. So barley is a follower of wheat. Wheat is a follower of France. And France is a follower of really what's going on uh, in terms of the Black Sea, because they're the most aggressively priced wheat in the world. And well, perhaps you could chuck Australia in there, but we've got such a freight advantage over them that it doesn't really often come into play. And they've got different types of wheat than we have as well. So we're not competing on, we're not stamping on each other's feet. So yeah, for UK, our traditional, well, I mean, half the time we're an importing nation, half the time we're an exporting nation on a net basis. Obviously, we do import a million ton odd or so of really high quality Canadian uh, spring wheats, you know, Canadian Western Springs. And we do import some US hard red springs, dark northern springs. We import a lot of German um, good quality, high quality stuff to blend with our local domestic stuff, wheat, um, just to make the, look, I'm not an expert on this, but to make the grist in terms of the milling industry, uh, they want to have some some of these harder spring wheats in there with high proteins. That's not changing one iota. So, so we're not really seeing a lot of change in terms of the UK trade flows. 
the thing that really I think for the UK is not really related to the Ukraine-Russia issue is that we we actually came up with a decent-sized crop, which for the first time in a while we're now an exporting nation, even though we import a million ton of high-quality milling wheat. So we do have to we do have to play the game uh, in terms of price-wise. We do have to be competitive. We can't just go. Uh, and price ourselves out the market because we do need to get rid of some of this wheat out of the country. And so far, the trade data looks like we're doing it pretty much month by month uh, on schedule. So yeah, we're doing all right. Yeah, you mentioned about the imports, you know, for the for the um, human human market versus the the feed market. Has there been a different impact on the sort of bread wheat market, milling wheat market? That's the word I'm looking for than on the feed wheat. Uh, look, I, I look to I look at the corn returns data every every week, um, and what we're seeing very clearly are extreme levels of um, um, full spec Group One milling wheat premiums are through the roof spot for all crop. Even though I am told by my farming clients that we had a decent crop size, a very good crop, um, and the quality wasn't half bad, we're still dealt dealing with. Um, uh, very high milling wheat premiums. I mean, the spot premium, according to the corn returns, is over £50 a tonne. Well, you know, I've, I've been doing this for 25 years and I've only seen that a couple of times. So we have very strong premiums. Uh, there are a couple of reasons for that. Clearly, we have a domestic supply and demand imbalance. We, we need more than we've actually got domestically. Um, but there are issues in the milling wheat uh, world so we're talking uh, Canada, uh, we're talking the U. Well, we're talking the US, really. That are prompting the milling wheat premiums around the world to go up. You can see it a little bit in Australia too, and they've got some fantastic quality wheat, uh, as well as the normal stuff. But they they have uh, so milling wheat premiums are pretty strong at the minute. They're not. They're absolutely huge. Um, will that continue into new crop? Uh, probably unlikely, but we haven't we haven't got through the spring and summer period yet. If you look to the hard red winter wheat crop in the US, the crop itself, I mean, it's a winter sown crop, and it's it's bread making wheat. So in the UK, we would look at that as a a full spec Group One milling wheat, but maybe a little bit higher. Pro well, no, it's eleven and a half, twelve percent protein. So it's it's like Group One milling wheat in the UK. The difference is that. It is for human consumption, whereas the soft red winter wheat crop, which is Chicago, the reference market, is it tends to go. It's an animal feed type grade or a soft wheat. It'll go into biscuits and flour and stuff like this. But so we are starting to look a little bit more closely at what's going on in the US. You know, think um, Kansas, Texas, Oklahoma, um, this part of the world. They've had a, a very dry and very poor winter crop and you know if you look at the crop ratings down there it's not as it's not a done deal that they're going to have a crop disaster but at the end of the day the kansas and minneapolis markets are, are on fire well on fire they're very very strong relative to the lower grade soft red winter wheat markets and i think we're seeing a reflection of a global um concern that there's uh, a lack of um human consumption minute on our doorstep and it's uh, it's not going away until i mean we are in february let's not forget so the, you know a lot of places have still got a lot of snow on the ground so we don't know what's going to happen in spring and summer weather wise but 
at the end of the day, um, it's happening now. And we just look at the crop conditions and we can see, well, we're going to have to have pretty, pretty good conditions in the US, the southern part of US, Kansas area, um, to be able to make up for what is already a deficit in condition ratings uh, that we've seen over the last uh, four months. So it's one to watch. It really is. And Russia's not that happy either. If you look at what the uh, we're starting to look at Russia with a view to how much winter killer they have. Russia always has winter kill every year. Some of it will die. They put the winter wheat in and some of it will die. It didn't get enough snow cover to prevent it from getting killed by frost. On the other side, there is still time, but the forecast looks extremely dry, not just for winter wheat, um, but for the spring crop inside as well. It's probably 70, 30%, 70% winter, 30%. And then we ask ourselves, if there is a bigger acreage of winter wheat kill in Russia, what's a farmer going to do? Is he going to plant more wheat, a spring wheat variety, let's say, or is he going to leave it fallow? In which case, then the Russian crop becomes in question, the size of the Russian crop production. So there are a lot. Of We're just starting that, that part of the year where uh, snow in the northern hemisphere is melting. We get a good idea about soil moisture levels going into the warmer months. Uh, we know we're going to start to find out a lot more about how much winter kill in Russia, which will be hugely important. Um, Australia being a back burner, um, we won't worry about them till May. That's when they'll start planting. Argentina's always a, already a basket case, um, both in terms of politics, finance, agriculture, pretty much everything. Really. <laughs> it's had a really unfortunate last few years with La Nina. Uh, Brazil, though, is compensating record wheat, record corn, record soybean crops. So, you know, South America, all in all, is probably about where it needs to be. North America concerns about uh, hard red winter wheat. Russia, a little bit worried about dryness. Um, and have they got enough subsoil moisture to get them through in the spring? Um, Europe is looking dandy. Uh, the latest EU MARS update came up with absolutely no problems at all in Europe. North Africa, we're looking to Morocco and Algeria. They're too dry. And obviously, if they have a smaller crop there, they'll have to import more, of which the UK could benefit from that because we do have relations with uh, both those countries. I noticed we did sell some um, to Algeria not long ago, and um, Morocco is um, uh, on our on our um, uh, is a place that uh, likes and knows and understands how to mill UK wheat. So grain trade wise, uh, look, Russia is exporting wheat hand over fist. It is doing uh, it's just absolutely going great guns. Ukraine not so much, but. I think the issue for Ukraine going forwards is not so much uh, what's going on now because this grain initiative is still going through. And frankly, even if it's stopped, I mean, you know, is Russia going to, what's Russia going to do? Bomb all the grain boats? No. It, um, well, we doubt that. I think the issue will be uh, whether, I mean, the, the, you know, Ukraine, if you look at it for new crop, They've got no money. They've got no fuel. They've got no fertilizer. They've got no seed. They've got and and frankly, all the fields are full of un, unspent armaments. You know, would you want to drive a tractor in a field that's got unexploded bombs in it? Uh, and I think the I think I think the ban 
I think there's a ban on them driving tractors at night time because you have to put your lights on. Then you're just like lit up like the Palacio Beacons, right? You know, it's not a good time to be a farmer in Ukraine. And so we can expect a significant downgrade in output expectations from that from there. Russia, uh, who don't have the same constraints, as it were, um, financial constraints, seed for, you know, whatever, we're really looking at the weather rather than the input costs and the inputs and the and that side of things. They have proved, even with the might of the Western world uh, having financial sanctions, they've proved that they can get this grain out to feed the world. So there's no reason to believe that they can't do it again. The question is, how much of it are they going to allow out? Because Putin is already saying, and not just him, actually, but um, there are others, but they're saying, you know, we have this quota, an export quota of grain going out of the country. And once that's done, it's done. But they're already starting to walk back on that. Frankly, the exports that we expect Russia to, to get out of the country are still within the quota. So it's not really a barrier. But the latest noise music, if you like, from Russia is that we'd actually quite like to keep some of this grain in Russia, actually, to, to dampen down our food price inflation rather than just give it away to the Western world, who are pretty aggressive to us, thank you very much. Uh, we'll keep it on our doorstep, thank you. you know. So you, I think geopolitics are going to continue to be a, a big factor in our markets. And if you look at the numbers, uh, there's roughly 20% of the entire population of the world that think Russia is a bad guy. 80% don't give a monkeys. Seriously, I mean, if you talk to a bloke in India and say, oh, yeah, Russia's invaded Ukraine, they'll go, well, yeah, but that was, that was part of Russia anyway, isn't it? Europe's always fighting. They've been doing it for hundreds of years. It's just another one. Can we not get involved, please? And that's, that's the attitude, right? If you actually said to anybody in the US, where is Ukraine on a map? Are we put it near Madagascar or something? I don't know. <laughs> they don't know. They don't care. You, you know, you're, if you're you're a farmer here in the UK, Rupert, or, you know, your clients that you're talking to, our, our readers, etc., and you're looking at your, your marketing plan for, for your grain, what should they be thinking about? Have you got any advice for them? Uh, well, in terms of strategy, how do you approach this? Well, if I put to you a graphic of um, the last 30 years of wheat prices in the UK, which I can do, you'll find that we've only been at these levels about three times. So that basically what we're saying is, uh, if you're a farmer and you're, you're 60 years old, uh, you've probably only seen these prices twice in your life. What does that tell you? And actually, if you look at November uh, 20, I think it's 25, which is two years away now, you can still get over 200 quid for your wheat. Depends where you are in a country, obviously. Basis levels change. but So, yeah, I mean, there's, there is a lot to go at. But um, one of the emotions, if you like, that I um, have to deal with on a daily basis is the difference between fear and greed. Now, when the price of wheat is 120 quid a tonne for feed wheat, and let's say fertilizer prices are relatively normal, basically, let's say that the UK wheat prices at cost of production, what you have on your hands is a heap of fearful farmers. They're fearful because they're basically looking at the books and saying, well, I've grown all this wheat and I'm not going to make any money out of it this year. When the price is 350 quid a tonne, 
they just see dollar symbols coming out of the head and they get the greed mode on and they just get greedy and they think, well, it's 350 now, maybe it's 400 next week. Uh, and so greed is a more powerful emotion than, um, uh, than fear in terms of trying to manage a sensible price risk management operation. You can walk farmers through that. These guys are not daft, but the worst case scenario is when you get a, a graphic, a show them a price graphic that goes from bottom left to top right in a relatively linear fashion, because no one knows when it's going to end. Uh, and so they just keep thinking it's going to just do the same and carry on. It never has done in history ever. And so try to, trying to explain that to, to guys is, um, well, it's, uh, it's different from trying to pat them on the back and saying, look, I'll buy your pint because the price of wheat's 120 quid and they're not making any money. So in my experience, I'd rather, well, I'd rather everyone does well, um, but don't, don't get greedy. That's what I would say. These prices are superb as far as the whole calendar strip looks and um, historically. Thank you to Rupert and to Cedric for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And we want your feedback if you've got any suggestions or comments or something that you'd like to know about our podcast. Email us at podcast at agriconnect.com. Now, the other big news story of the week concerns Northern Ireland, with Prime Minister Rishi Sunak standing shoulder to shoulder with the leader of the EU, Ursula von der Leyen, to unveil the Windsor framework, which is looking to fix the problems associated with the Northern Ireland Protocol. As part of the agreement, Mr Sunak said that uh, they will end the situation where food made to UK rules could not be sent to or sold in Northern Ireland, which means that if food is available on supermarket shelves here in Great Britain, it will be available in supermarket shelves in Northern Ireland. He also stated that trees, plants and seed potatoes would be available in garden centres in Northern Ireland. Farmers Guardian will be bringing you all the latest analysis and reaction on what it means for farmers in Great Britain and in Northern Ireland. County Antrim-based sheep farmer and former UFU president Campbell Tweed welcomed the new framework, saying that the announcement addressed many of the problems and sounded just what was needed. He also hoped that now this has been agreed, we'd be able to see the return of the Stormont Assembly and get a functioning government back in Northern Ireland. Farmers Guardian has also been saddened to hear this week of the news of the death of Ian Potter on February 27th after a short illness. Ian was a giant of the dairy industry for three decades. As a quota broker, a columnist in Farmers Guardian's sister magazine Dairy Farmer for 25 years, a commentator and reporter through his own weekly bulletin and as a farmer in his own right. Here at Farmers Guardian, Ian was a much-valued contact with an exceptional knowledge of the dairy sector, and he's certainly somebody who will be much missed in UK agriculture. That's it for this week's episode of Over the Farm Gate. We'll be back with another episode for you next Friday, but if you look back through our archive, you'll also be able to find our coverage of the Ukraine war when it began back in February 2022. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye for now.